Hello and welcome back to For College Girls. We're still in season four, episode five, y'all. We made it to this episode. <laughs> um, we are so grateful because in this episode, we have the amazing Siki Delenga, who took the time to share her wisdom with us and bless us so much with this conversation. And she did it all the way from South Africa. So we had all this time difference and she took the time out of her day just to share this with us. So we are so grateful. We are looking forward to you hearing all of that she had to share with us. So here it goes. All right. Oh, this is so, this is such an exciting conversation and moment. Thank you, Siki, for just taking the time, um, being intentional with sharing with us a part of yourself. And if you can just, you know, we know you, we love you, but our listeners um, don't, and we want them to know how awesome you are. So if you can just take a moment and introduce yourself and what we need to know about you in this time. Welcome. Thank you. Well, good morning or good evening, whatever time zone you are going to be listening um, at. Uh, my name is Siki Langa. Uh, my full name is actually Sike Lelo. <laughs> I always do that. <laughs> Sike Lelo means be blessed. It's a command. So I pray that this will be a blessed <laughs> conversation for everybody. <laughs> I am in South Africa. I'm South African. And I studied uh, MA in Washington in political communication um, in D.C. And I came back last year to South Africa. Um, I'm a writer, do commentary, political commentary. I also work with churches, um, you know, people of faith and, and try to do whatever really um, is pressing at the moment. I've kind of done a lot of different activism. Mostly, I would say, um, I'm usually drawn to spaces where people of faith are not activated in um, issues of justice that they're not engaged in. Um, and then I would go into those spaces and start a conversation that enables, you know, participation until more people come in into the space and I feel like they're running with it, then I leave. And I <laughs> and and kind of do something else. And so right now, this moment, what I you, my space, that space that hasn't been occupied, that needs a conversation, that needs activism, and all those things in our country is the gender-based violence space. And so that is a, a very big issue where the church in South Africa. Um, has not been participating. It's a social issue. Uh, so it's not particularly just a, an issue that's happening within churches. It's, a, it's an issue that's an issue in the country. Uh, however, uh, you know, 80% of people in this country claim to be Christian. And so, and the churches are usually a very powerful space. Um, where a lot of people get the information and their dialogues and understanding. And, and that's the space where, you know, I, I, would, I would say the damage of gender-based violence and the thinking around it has been corrupted. Um, and so instead of churches and Christian theology 
instead of it being a healing space, I would say that it has been certainly it has certainly fed to gender-based violence historically, you know. Um, and of course, you can say, okay, you can add culture and all of that um, to, to that mixture. You can add colonialism and all the different aspects of it. So I am engaged in the church to try and get the church to be engaged in that thinking um, and, and to, to try and change people's minds. Um, or sometimes, you know, I'll speak to radio stations that are not, you know, mainstream radio, not necessarily um, just Christian radio, because people who call themselves Christians don't know, don't necessarily go to church, and a lot of time they don't. <laughs> so you have to go anywhere where they are, right? Um, so I don't know if I've already said too much, but I'm going to stop there for now. <laughs> no, you did not. <laughs> yeah. So... One of the things that we um, have been really sharing uh, with our time, with our guests, is this idea of call and vocation. And this is inspired by Alice Walker's definition, womanism, Mm -hmm. along with uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Emily Towns' application of womanism. And talking about call and vocation Mm -hmm. as defined as a call that is doing work that your soul must have. So wow, that is beautiful, right? <laughs> I when beautiful. I first, when I first read that I was like, yes, that's exactly right. Right. So you already mentioned gender-based violence and how you are working within your community, specifically um, trying to. Um, help the conversation go on and um, work through how the church needs to be a better place of healing and not a place of harm when it comes to that. Um, Right. Um, So how is this related to work that your soul must have? I love it. God, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, this is related in, in a sense that you know, the, the, it, for me, it's about harmony. You know, uh, sometimes when we listen, well, you can't really enjoy your life if there are places around you that are crying with pain. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm a woman, but let's say I wasn't a woman. <laughs> let's put that aside and say, even if I wasn't, I would say, given the cry, how, how can anyone sit under a tree on a beautiful day, enjoy their cup of whatever core drink while they're watching somebody, you know, being beaten up to a pop. Are you really going to have fun in that space and feel like you're at peace, you know? Yeah. So while you are at that space, you cannot say that you are at peace. Your soul cannot be enjoying itself. Um, but there's a whole experience of being a black South African woman that is, oh, it's like, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a whole story of its own, you know, since our country came out of apartheid, uh, we carry that whole story of the black woman being at the bottom of the whole struggle. And, uh, black women are still the poorest uh, compared to everybody else. 
And so it's, it's a continual struggle still on every level where we are still fighting for our freedom, even though on paper, our democracy says we are, we've been given a, you know, an equal place in society from the word go on paper, you know. Um, so on the constitution, the constitution is perfect, you know, but in reality, our, our lived lives are very, very different. Um, where we still have to fight these structural injustices on a daily basis. And one of those, I, I wouldn't even say it's even racial, like racially, I think in general. Um, South African women, we have the highest femicide rate in the world, mm-hmm. five times higher, in fact. Mm-hmm. And femicide, which is basically where women are more likely to be murdered by their partners. Um, and of course, I mean, besides that, there's also the, 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 the rape issue also that happens. And the crime issue where as a woman, you don't walk, when you're walking around, you feel like you, you constantly have to be careful all the time. And, and that's very limiting. It's limiting to what you want to do, it's like it basically, especially as a black woman who lives in the township, um, it's even harder in the township because townships were created as really, they were created by the apartheid government. They were created violently. Uh, and I would even go as far as to say townships are prisons. Really, they were built to contain black people mm-hmm. After black people's land, people were stolen. This land was stolen. They were kicked out of their houses, and their homes, and their large, spacious places, villages. So, so I would say that the, the part of the violence that is in South Africa is on the one hand we didn't have this bloodbath that was expected, the civil war that was expected. Mm-hmm. However, we still have it in a sense because it's 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 working itself out in among ourselves, it's like a gender-based violence. Mm. Um, So this trauma that was in society, people internalize it and now it's become a gender war actually, you know, where of course it's it's women who are, and children, where the receiving end. And so it's it's very, I feel like it's a very complicated issue that I'm not sure that we are, on the one hand, we can just look at it as, you know, it's gender inequality and just stop there and fight it from, you know, one angle. And, and I feel like that's also problematic because I think if, if we look at, I'm sure if we look at the U.S. as well, I do think that it's a lot bigger than, you know, gender. It's the violence of, you know, colonialism, apartheid, um, you know, families being separated uh, during apartheid where men were migrant laborers and women were at home and all the, those dynamics. And so I, I, I personally describe uh, the township as, some, as a prison that was created by apartheid. Nobody describes it like that, but to me it is. That's the concept because it was created to contain and to control. It was created for purposes of violence. And so when I was a child, I was born in the rural areas. So when I came here, I was still a child. 
I immediately felt scared compared to when I'm in the village. Mm. You know, in the village, I felt free, but I felt safe. Yeah. Um, but in the township, as somebody who was born in a village, the township was a scary place because I could feel this violence, you know, in the, in the atmosphere about it. It just felt very, very unsafe. And it was unsafe <laughs> and it's still unsafe. And so the gender-based violence then, then plays out in the home in these confined spaces. But I, I don't want to say it only happens in black families. So that's not what I'm saying. Because yeah. it does happen in white homes, it does happen in Indian homes, it does happen in, um, I would say, across the spectrum in this country. It, it's this 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 gender based violence, which I I do think a lot more work needs to be done. So for me, that's the work that needs to be done. <laughs> you know that even though I would I would not have woken up and said okay. My call in life is to fix this problem. <laughs> That's not what I, I, I kind of set out to do. But the issue is so big. It, it, I have to be crazy not to do it because as a woman, you know, you always have to be thinking. And, and I'm thinking that even for me to go to the U.S., for example, um, it's because I practiced from a very young age learning from my mother not to be intimidated by my environment mm. by anyone, you know? Yep. Um, and so do you, because if if you live in fear, because we have so many reasons to fear, especially if you're if you're a woman and you're unprotected, you don't have a car, live in the township, maybe people with more money who live in suburbs, you know, who have more, there's more safety for them. But if you live in, in generally uh, townships, uh, where you're more vulnerable and you have to use public transport and you have to walk distances, there's a lot more possibility of, of interacting with people uh, who may make you feel unsafe, men in particular, you know. Um, but I was brought up to be fearless. And not everybody is brought up to be fearless and it does cost you something because every time you have to make a decision I am not going to be afraid um so even if I think every single person who's ever tried every robber I've ever encountered they've always been a man <laughs> I've never I've never met a robber who tried to rob me like with a knife or something or anything who was a woman <laughs> you know right so um so, so there's just so many of these levels where you've just where I've I have to, I've been cultured and taught to make decisions of bravery, and that's really it's not it's not right that it, on the one hand someone can you know look at someone and say oh look at how much you know someone has achieved how far they've gone how much they've overcome but it's really not fair because nobody's supposed to have to make so many decisions that seem like everyday kind of decisions in your head. It's like your head space as a woman, you're always thinking about your safety. And in, and in South Africa, we cannot, we cannot, cannot, cannot. We've got to have a better life. Um, children have to have a better life. Uh, and the more unequal our society becomes, because Africa is also the most unequal country in the world. 
it it adds more to this to the sense of danger the more the poorer you are the more vulnerable you are um to these dangers so the soul work <laughs> maybe what should i call it safety <laughs> um and and i don't see that as a as a as an even as an an exclusion uh to masculinity or whatever expressions really want to call it it's like how can we just be human together and just value each other's humanity how can we all be whole together because i i see you know that even the 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 you know men themselves are very broken um they're broken and um and i mean the good thing is that now our society is you know uh, men in the entertainment industry are starting to being called up for some of the things they've done which is very important um to shift the conversation uh so when you know celebrities our celebrities are being held accountable then it it it, it ensures at least in that it kind of gets into the national psyche to everyone that oh anyone can be held accountable it, you know you it doesn't it you know you don't get to escape and um, we've got priests people who well, I mean they're false prophets a lot of them but I don't want to say I don't want to limit it to uh, you know people who are we've got these cults <laughs> they are all over the continent but I think they're pretty big here, you know, and uh, I, it's, a, it's another story there, that one, maybe I shouldn't even go into it. <laughs> but in those spaces, there is a lot of exploitation, again, where faith spaces that will come in the name of Christianity that exploit the poor because the poor need hope. So where do the poor go? They go to these people say they, you know, you know, these miracle houses, uh, if you want to call it the, you know, and they want to, you know, pay this much money. And a lot of it is modeled after American prosperity gospel. Mm. Um, but it's it's very much exploitation. And then out of those places, you, you know, there are a lot of stories of girls who've been raped by these prophets, false prophets. And, you know, the encouraging thing is that they have been brought to trial, many of them, and more are coming. It's just been interrupted by this COVID. So there's so many layers where we try very hard to deal with this. But at the same time, we are so far behind that the ordinary person in the church pew, they haven't actually even the, in fact, I don't even want to go as far as to say the person that just sits in the church pew. It's the preacher. The preacher doesn't have language himself because I would say himself, because most of the preachers are male in our country. <laughs> um, you know, and so they, you, their relationships with men, women, have they examined how they've behaved? You know, and of course, the people who've been perpetrating or holding the space for patriarchy also are women. Women are sometimes biggest champions, sometimes bigger in my experience, where there were, you know, the one time where they are in the pulpit, they're teaching women how to be oppressed, basically, in a nutshell, and how biblical that is. And so it's a lot of hard work to now try and undo that work. And so for me, 
the soul work is how can we look at the scriptures and look at our lives and, and our stories. So here are personal stories and the stories that are in the scriptures and the stories would tell each other, how are we reinforcing hurtful, uh, harmful ways when our faith is supposed to be a place of healing? Um, and how are we? How can we create spaces where those voices are heard, and and the broken can say, "This is how I've been broken," and um, you know, and people start sharing their stories. And of course, there's also the the, the element of the law. The law has also has to take its its course. Uh, but it, there's not going to be healing if it's just the law or just the talking. So all these things work together. So everybody has to take their place somehow and somewhere there i have been trying to roll that conversation where this where there's the story and the scriptural engagement and, and trying to engage different churches and different people who want to write about it who want to think about it who want to converse about it and of course because i you know i'm also political i will also engage our, our history how it's layered um, with connecting us to this oppression and, 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 and what would it look like for us to walk away and free ourselves from those narratives? Um, it's a long story, I know. <laughs> but right now... <laughs> no, I was just going to say, Siki, that it's a long story that has... There's this richness and truth that you have shared that often when we talk about gender-based violence and when we talk about generational trauma, like we don't name, mm. like how mm. you, um, and, and thank you so much for the way that you have layered your own story and just the image. I, I was almost traveling into your village. I don't even know what, it, I don't know what your village looks like, but to be in a village mm. that is safe and a sanctuary mm. for you, and then to sure. move to a township that was built mm. for violence, that perpetuates sure. violence and harm. You know, mm. I think about in the mm. U.S. context, you know, the, so many of Black brothers and sisters have been taken from the land, brought to plantations, sure. moved into sure. projects, right? Like sure. there is this history of trauma that is also situates in physical place that you've named that I often feel like in these conversations about justice, we don't talk about place. We don't talk about um, how that just makes an impact. So thank you so much for naming that. And, um, and also just bringing that connection to this is the work that your soul must have. Yeah, that was just such a beautiful illustration that is like, moving within me I'm a very like feeling person and I'm like oh that that's oh, thank you mm -hmm. thank you Laura there was such a thank you for that feedback uh, mm -hmm. I think let me add a piece actually to that to that picture that I painted is that on the one hand the village is safe because it's you know it, it it's the, the history the culture the families the all of that works together but the other element where I want to add the gender base, the, 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 the gender 
element of safety in the village as a child, uh, or even as a, as a woman. So, I mean, I suppose even then, it's not that the village was not affected by apartheid violence. Actually, they were. They were actually also forcibly removed to smaller land. But however, they still, there was still culture. But one of the things that made it safe for me was my, the presence of my grandfather. You know, so, you know, so <laughs> it's also that. The presence of my grandfather, whom everybody knew, and so nobody would want to violate my grandfather, my grandfather's daughters. <laughs> so because he was seen as a figure of protection and respect, because, you know, even then, um, there wasn't necessarily safety always for, for women, even though there were safety measures culturally, if a man did violate a woman, there is a court tribunal traditionally and all kinds of things that are in place where there is accountability. But additionally to that, I would say my grandfather, you know, don't mess with his daughters or anyone for that matter. If, if he hears that somebody violated a woman, my grandfather would not be happy. He would have a very strong word <laughs> For that man, that man would never be the same again. <laughs> truth, <laughs> truth, nor should they, nor should they. Amen. Amen. So, Siki, I wanted to ask you, so in your journal, you brought up um, the significance of home. What does it mean to be whole in this time and place? Um, you know, it's been quite a year as it's been for the whole world. And for me, I... Uh, moved back to my home country, my beautiful country, South Africa. And, uh, you know, I barely kind of settled and, uh, you know, we're rocked by the loss of my younger brother's life. And, you know, and, and then you were moved on to a COVID situation. Um, so to be a whole in this time and place um, really has been a time of, of healing um i was still trying to find my feet and it just simply been a blessing to be home it really has been um just to know the medical systems here um and know if something happens and you know uh that i, I just feel safe um in just in, in different ways um of course we have our own challenges trust me <laughs> as does the whole world um and so for me to be whole at this time, honestly, has been just the privilege of being home, um, of being able to see my family, of being around my mother. And as I was hearing that, a quote came to mind from Buddhist priest, uh, Zenju Earthland Manuel. She's a Black woman, Zen Buddhist priest, and she talks about home and sanctuary like this. She says that, Sanctuary is a place we can go when our lives are under threat, where we can consider wow. love in the midst of oppression. It is a place for those mm. who speak a language not of the dominant culture, but a place where anyone can say, I am home. And as I hear you talk about your grandfather and the significance of culture, you know, I, I hear that 
like there's sanctuary in that. And so I wondered Mm -hmm. if you could reflect for us that on as a black South African woman, Mm -hmm. both Mm -hmm. in South Africa, but also Mm -hmm. in the US, where Mm -hmm. were the places that you found sanctuary? And, Mm -hmm. and just a second question to that too is, how did the sanctuaries both in, both in South Africa as well in the U.S. shape your call and your ministry? And how does it continue to do that? Oh, wow. That is a very big question. <laughs> I love the question. Um, well, it, I, I found, even when I was reflecting on this, I found it very, very complex because it's almost as if there's certain moments of time where a century manifests itself in one way and in another, another. Now, let me make an example. When I was in the US living in a very white space, very foreign space, foreign, but also very familiar because of the dynamics that I'm used to in South Africa, except that the violence that I was aware of that was more dangerous in America is that uh, I I was just aware of that if if anything racist happens to me, there seems to be less accountability for whoever is, you know, doing violence to me than if I was in South Africa. If I was in South Africa, there is this, feeling of knowing that I'm safe because I'm on my continent for heaven's sake, you know, (laughs) I have that psychological back, you know, that's kind of happening in my head that this is my continent. You can't just do whatever you you think you, you you're doing. Even if you're getting away with it right now, I feel this confidence that you're not actually going to get away with it. Partly because usually, uh, it does get addressed in South Africa generally, but psychologically also just I'm on my continent. There will be justice, you know? Yep. And so the moment I've found this vulnerability and so this, this, this edge of danger and I could feel the violence of that slavery, that psyche of slavery that still have working in white people. And I felt like their racism is more dangerous because I realized how violent the the slavery element where they felt like they they had complete dominion and outnumbered the people that had been enslaved there was there was something there for me to kind of be in that space where i feel like these people there's nothing holding them no morality that seems to be holding them no fear that seems to be holding them to there's nothing in them that's forcing them to say you must feel bad about what you're doing, you will be held accountable. Whereas in South Africa, I feel like there's a part of them that they are still afraid of me because I'm in my continent, because they, they're less than me. So however, whatever they can try to do, I feel like they're still afraid when they walk away, even if they succeed. So now being in a space where I'm, I'm, I'm outside and I'm very aware of the violence and, and aware of the violence of, it's, it's very interesting because I even found the pavement violent <laughs> and, and just the whole restructuring of America that is just this perfection of it 
where it's like you, you, it's like even the soul of the place is killed and just the violence of the presence of the number of white people that you see that there's so many that you, you can't see Native Americans and it's just exactly the way they wanted it and and perfect as it is it was created with violence so that was always present to me um, the, the space itself. I didn't need somebody to do something violent to me. And so whenever I would come across a black person working on the side of the road, a black man greeting me, for me, that is a century moment. I would take it, you know? And I would just like, ah, uh, I would just feel seen. I would just feel, you know, I mean, you know, they might feel very far away and disconnected from Africa since, you know, for generations, but I would feel Africa <laughs> when, they, when they say hello, sister, that moment where they stop to greet me, acknowledge me, that for me, those mornings, those moments in the morning, those moments would be sanctuary for me mm. because I would find it very spiritual. Um, and then, of course, you know, I would have a moment where I would, it didn't always happen, bump into a black woman. <laughs> and it would be like, oh, wow. And she would, she would be like, you know, she would greet me and just pass. And, you know, I, I um, and I would be like, Ugh. she also, you know, uh, if I'm all right. But I mean, she doesn't wait for my answer, but it's like, did you hear what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's everything. Yeah. A sister just greeted me. No, <laughs> I mean, but, it's like yeah. she knows what I'm going through. She's, she's just like releasing something strength. It was like a strengthening moment. Mm. And then, of course, I'm on campus, and you know, campus is very white and all of that. And a lot of people are, are younger. And then there would be this amazing, miraculous moment where an older black woman would walk up swear, I'd be like, God, must be this. <laughs> like this. <laughs> I would feel all the spirituality that he embodies and has had to embody in order to be in that in spaces like that. I would just feel the spirituality that is, but for me, those were the moments, <laughs> the acknowledgements between Black people. Those were my century, uh, century spaces, the, the, especially, you know, I would say especially the people that are working on the side of the road, because there's something about them that is less rushed um, that is, you know, they're not concerned about the academy or, or, or whiteness around them. They just take that moment, you know, they're like, I just, I just loved those moments. I suppose because I, I usually have those moments with Africa as well, you know, uh, with just ordinary people. I would, so I would recognize the similarity of that and I would find it very, very, you know. So, and then sometimes, of course, I would find myself in all black spaces spaces again you know I would find that older black women really played a role <laughs> um, I would find that older black women 
uh, really, 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 they would really see me and, and really call me out, call out my, even my calling and my ministry. Um, and, you know, I remember the, the one woman, you know, even once tried to, well, not even once actually, you know, different, at different times I've met different kind of older black woman who almost tried to shake me to my corner. Do you realize who you are? <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's just, those moments, uh, I didn't have a, you know, a lot of them all the time. They weren't around me all the time just because there was just a lot of whiteness around me. But I, I really, really valued those moments. So for me, it's in the ordinary, it's even in the bus, in the bus, you know, those moments would happen. It would be, you know, oh, what's that place where you go and you buy a subway, you know? You know, the lady decides to give you an extra cheese, slice of cheese because you're black. <laughs> those, are the, those are the best moments. Yes. Yes. That's reparations coming to life. Yes. Totally. <laughs> Go ahead. Or, or, you know. So there's so many of these moments where they're just there all the time. And, and I just found black people so giving and just recognizing one another that, hey, we're in a hard space. We, we have to create soft places for ourselves. And, and that was very intentional. And, and I know that in very wide spaces, South Africa as well, like certain spaces, I would find that also where black people would do that. So I was familiar with that secret spiritual language we speak to one another to just you know give ourselves you know soft spaces and spaces to breathe so that we can <sighs> I've been with my people and then you go you've got a little bit more strength to tackle the world so I'll say that and then yeah it's very interesting because the complex here is you know the the, the different spaces so when I when I when I came back I knew I wanted to be in a less developed place and just be in my, uh, I mean, I'm not in the rural, rural spaces. I would probably, I mean, <laughs> uh, I would want running water, you know. So, but the wonderful thing about being, about the rural space, that village, as, I was, as I'm telling you about the village, the village, there are relational elements that are in the village and the ways of being and the slowness of pace um, and just belonging and knowing that these people are my relatives from however long, you know, it's like you feel related to the whole village, um, you know, because, you know, we've got clan names and all these things. And so, you know, this entire clan lives here and that creates some kind of rooting for you where you just feel like, you are rooted culturally, emotionally, spiritually in the space. Just being in the space itself roots you. And, um, and yeah, because but at the same time, spiritually, I, it doesn't always mean that I'm fully understood <laughs> because I've had so many diverse experiences that they haven't had. So then I'm, you know, kind of, you know, then it's like I'm having this split language uh, where I, I know that I've, I've had to spend a lot of years trying to explain, you know, find ways to share stories with my mother that were would have been easy to share with someone else, you know, in, in who would have had the same education as me, 
Um, and so it's that being at home long enough to be able to find language to explain a world she's never been to and bring it to her, you know, in her own language and, and actually find the time to find the words in my language to explain those things and share those moments and, and, and then let her experience the life that in a sense she enabled me to be able to experience um, while she could not because she just didn't have the same access as me. There's so much, Siki, that I'm just sitting in with what you've shared. But also, yes, that moment of being able to be in conversation with your mother. And, you know, I feel like any of those who, all of those who come before us and instilled with us just a power of being so that we could tackle the spaces that are violent towards us, you know? Um, sure. And just just hearing that is so grateful. Um, Tamika, I didn't, do you do you have a question? Okay, <laughs> I just want to say that. <laughs> no, you're really that's good because it's. I was I'm I'm sitting with that too actually because Siki, you name something that is often misinterpreted and also um, not honored. And, and not not that I want I need it to be honored by our white uh, siblings, but um, how, especially amongst black people, this idea that we find sanctuary in each other and we seek each other out in spaces um, for that reason, because mm. there is a there is a feeling of safety in it, right? Even even mm. in places that are considered unsafe, right? Like certain mm. neighborhoods, yeah. right? Yeah. There's, there's just yeah. a level at which we seek each other and see each other that feel safe because we've all in some way have experienced something that makes us who we are as black people in this country. And, and Mm. it makes me feel good to hear that from you because I will say that when I took the trip to South Africa, um, I've taken three trips and uh, the, the last one, especially that was just, that was like my favorite part is, seeing like I was in a group with mainly white people <laughs> and then like we're walking around and then someone would stop me and say hey sister and just like feeling a part of yes. community like even yes. when it wasn't yes. my own country like when I you know and they knew I was yes. I mean I looked American I'm walking around with all these white people and stuff and like but yes. just just this connection that we have with one another um yeah to, to name that as sanctuary is such a beautiful thing and i think we could I, I think people needed to hear that because it's often misinterpreted as like trying to be divisive or separate ourselves and really it isn't it's it's just a way for us to come back into ourselves so that we can deal mm. with the rest of what we're going to have to deal with you know so yeah, I just yeah. like you were speaking and I'm like yes that's exactly right I just wanted to to also add to that um but okay so yeah, speaking yeah. speaking of sanctuaries speaking of places and spaces that have shaped you you also mention that there's a part of you that has been learning to let go let go so that you mm-hmm. can make room for God to speak 
And so one of the things that God's been speaking to me about lately is ways of letting go, you know, letting go of places I've been that have really shaped who I am, you know, whether it's, it's thinking deeply of, you know, what am I bitter about and letting that go, uh, just really walking light, walking lighter. And that's really proved to create space uh, for God to speak to me in fresh ways and to really show me uh, and, and to also let other things that I probably haven't listened to as much to speak to me, um, to emerge because the, the other stuff that have been heavy on my soul are no longer weighing heavily on me. And I'm wondering um, if you could share kind of where you have found God speaking to you um, as you've been letting go? Um, and what are some things you're trying to still let go of? Um, so that, and you also mentioned not just God, but so that other things can start to speak to you, right? So I just wanted to, to ask you that question and share that with our listeners who might be seeking a, a more spiritual grounding and a way to hear God speaking to them. Thank you. Thank you, Tomik. You know, uh, there, there's so many different ways of letting go that I, one of the ways that kind of manifested to me as letting go in a way that I wasn't expecting was in the way that I tell my story to myself, <laughs> where I, I, I then, in letting go, I realized that there, that there are ways that I was telling my story in some parts negatively where I didn't see some of the opportunities I had um, because I perceived things in a particular way and I was telling my story in a particular way mm. and then I realized oh my goodness what you know and it's it, it you know and some of the most negative ways where I had been telling myself my own story to myself I then learned that some of those parts were actually not as negative as I thought they were and and, you know it's like it would be like a painful thing for me you know where I was pretty sure you know this and this and this didn't happen and and then I realized no actually I missed this and I missed that and so some of it has been you know the bravery to to see my story in a different light and to be able to own (laughs) to own parts of my story in a way that I, I haven't been able to own before and, and then to make, you know, different decisions where I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to approach life from henceforth now that I've learned this and this and this about myself? And, and that for me, I would say it's, it's also, it's part of this letting go where I will pray and say, you know, God, show me, um, you know, shine your light on on my life, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just show me, uh, what am I, what, what am I not seeing? Show me my blind spots. Cause sometimes I think part of the thing burned out is, is just being, we carry layer after layer after layer after layer, sometimes without reviewing our own story. So on the other hand, you know, there is a story that affects us that's bigger than us. In my case, you know, uh, I, I lost my brother, which was very, very sad. It's more than sad. 
um, I, I actually have no words for it. And so the grieving process, and on the one hand, I mean, I've lost so many family members through different times in my life. I, and, uh, I've never made peace with death. But I think with experiencing death as often as I have, it's also, in a sense, shown me not to be defeated by death. Um, because death itself is not a finality, because those are one of the spiritual lessons, because the, the whole thing about spirituality to me is that it's much like how we live, that it, it's meant to be experienced. It's an experience rather than, you know, a set of ideas that I think <laughs> about spirituality, but it, it's my communion with God, my communion with Holy Spirit. It's what is being revealed to me. What is what is the thing that is going to bring healing to me right now? And and that might not be the most comfortable thing. It's being open to uh, not being necessarily what doesn't look like the most comfortable thing to hear is sometimes the very thing that's going to heal the most. Um, so just truth in the innermost person. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that I have to understand a spiritual idea <laughs> in order for me to know this is God speaking to me here. I don't know the fullness of this. I don't know how it works itself out, but I'm going to pursue it until it opens itself up to me. Um, and so one of the things that have come up for me is, the, you know, a very famous scripture that I've heard a million, million, million times. You know, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that has been, like, where have I been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have read the scripture, I have heard the scripture, and suddenly it was like it, it came to life for me. It came, it came and it just gave me breath. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you a rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lovely in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy oh. <laughs> and my burden is light oh my goodness um and so for me i feel like <laughs> this is the core unburdening i'm trying to do here it's coming to the scripture and you know what is the lived experience? What does it look like for me? You know, what are those things where I'm laboring? Where am I heavy laden? Um, you know, what would what would rest for my soul? What is rest for my soul? Um, it's just such a beautiful invitation because we are bombarded with so many needs in the world and all the ways that we feel we can contribute 
or need to contribute. <laughs> and so quite frankly, I would say at the moment, uh, for me, one of the ways that I'm unburdening myself in, in terms of spiritually is I, my sanctuary, I'm finding that just praying the scriptures and almost meditating in the scriptures and, and just thinking, what is the live reality of that scripture? And just taking those spaces of just where I feel like I don't need my own words when I'm praying at the moment, because sometimes I feel like I'm overwhelmed. So I can just pray the Psalms because they were written. They already, they're already saying what I want, what I actually want to say better than what I want. Even if I'm, I'm praying the same thing, um, I'll pray. That I'm quite happy to pray the same scripture for a whole week, for a whole month. <laughs> because it's just helping me, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so that's, that's how I would say that a lot of my spirituality <laughs> is working. And, uh, um, and I would say this particular scripture has just given me so much life and permission to breathe. Yes. Um, wow. First of all, I <laughs> hear you say that particular scripture over and over and on a daily. So maybe we can just, I'll just come back to this recording and it will have such an impact <laughs> just because of, <laughs> I could feel, I could feel the truth in it. Um, and I want to offer that what you just shared, I think a lot of people probably need to hear right now. Um, with all of the trauma, all of the things that we have been mm. living through um, with this pandemic, mm. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing about your brother. Um, I'm so sorry about that. You know, that's, that's so hard. <laughs> um, and I know that's, I know that so many people um, right now in our world are dealing with the loss of people that they love. And mm. I think mm. hearing you share that aspect of your life and share how you are praying the scriptures um, is really mm. impactful. And I hope that mm. whoever needed to hear that mm. does receive it mm. in the way that I just received it. And maybe... You know, some of our listeners aren't necessarily Christian. Um, they might be people who mm. aren't familiar with the biblical scriptures, mm. but perhaps mm. like you found your way through an inspiring book or um, some poetry that does a similar thing where it speaks to you and it speaks to the heart of where you are. Um, I think that that's mm. a beautiful gift to be able to use that as a way of prayer or a way of meditation and to find comfort in the words um, that others have put mm. in, in, in those spaces. Mm. So that mm. is uh, Siki. <laughs> You're amazing. Oh, I just, um, I just want you to know that you have completely blessed us with your, oh. your presence with, um, how much you have shared of yourself 
And this has been kind of a long time coming. So very, very, very <laughs> grateful <laughs> that you have taken this time all the way from South Africa, seven hours ahead of us to do this interview, to share a part of your story with us and just to be a part of this conversation. So I just want to thank you. We want to thank you so much for giving us your time and being in this space with us. We are very, very grateful. Yes. Yes. Beyond grateful. Thank, thank you, Suki. And if you can share with us, how can our listeners continue to follow and support your work? Well, uh, thank you so much. You're both wonderful. I mean, you, I listen to your questions and your reflections. I'm like, oh, so wonderful. I just love it. Um, it's, it's been such a blessing. Thank you. Um, so this is, this is how uh, people can follow me. If they go to Amazon, I have poetry books. <laughs> One is called Word of Worth and one is called um, Love. It's like a love collection poet, uh, poetry book. And uh, yeah, that's that's all I can say. Otherwise, you can follow me on Twitter. I, I, I don't really necessarily recommend following me on Twitter because I go all crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they should follow you, Siki. How can they follow you on Twitter? What's your handle? <laughs> My Instagram is at Siki Langa. S-I-K-I-D-L-A-N-G-A. That's my Instagram. <laughs> you know I'm, more, I'm more sane on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm sure I'm just freaking out. Which <laughs> 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 well, is the nature of Twitter, if we're being honest, like, right? <laughs> but um, thank you so much again. And please, please um, make sure to support Siki Lenga. Did I say it right? It's it's Langa. Langa. I'm gonna get it. Okay. Yes, you yes. can say the Langa. Langa. If, 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 if just so that you know spell it right. Yes. Well, you can follow Siki, support her work. Her poetry is absolutely gorgeous, as you probably can tell just by hearing her. And we are just grateful to have a beautiful sister um, in South Africa that we are connected with. And now you are connected with her, um, if you haven't already been, right? Because she has, I mean, she's been doing this for quite some time. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So again, we just want to thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to having another conversation with you some other time. Yes, this has been any time. I completely enjoy the both of you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We see you, sis. We see you. <laughs> we love you. We do love you. Thank you so much, Siki, for the truth, the reflection, the time that you dropped in, just recognizing your vocation, 
your call to addressing gender-based violence uh, and how the church needs to step up. We are so grateful for the witness that you have. And may we all continue to follow Siki and support her ministry in the way that she's leading the church. Absolutely. Uh, so, yes. yes. Thank you. So again, thank you, Siki. Thank you to our listeners, to our Patreon supporters. Shout outs to Odai Productions. Hey, this is how we have gotten this far, y'all. <laughs> we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. Yes. <laughs> we are. We are. And we'll see you at the next episode. We sure will. We are. We are. For Cali Girls.